Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now we're pre-recorded tonight, so keep listening. We've got a lot of great information to share, but we won't be taking any callers. Diabetes in the eye, damage from high sugars, it's the leading cause of blindness in adults under the age of 65. Up to 40% of people with diabetes will have these effects in the eyes. And the longer you have the diabetes, the greater the chances are that you'll be affected by a condition called diabetic retinopathy. What is it and how can you find out if you have it? Well, we've got Dr. James Lai in the studio from the Retina Consultants of Hawaii. He's here to tell us more about how diabetes can affect the eye and what you need to do about it. Dr. Lai, welcome to The Body Show. Thanks, Kathy. Good to be here. Happy to have you here. I think the last time we had a discussion, we are talking about macular degeneration. And so we never got to talk about some other eye issues. So this is a great chance to go over those, specifically diabetes effects on the eye. I think a lot of people don't realize that certain medical conditions can dramatically affect vision even when you're younger. What does diabetes do to the eyes? So diabetes can affect all parts of the eye. So in general, when, when people talk about diabetic eye disease, they're referring to one of three things. Beginning in the front of the eye, diabetes increases the risk of developing cataracts. So cataracts are a clouding of the lens. And typically, people with um, cataracts are much older, but patients with diabetes tend to develop cataracts at, at an earlier age. And the effect of cataract is, think of it as... It's a clouding of the lens. So as the cataract develops, people start noticing graying out of colors, blurring the vision. And there's a specific type of cataract that often occurs in diabetic patients, which is much more symptomatic than the regular cataract. So with cataracts, the the solution for that is to have cataract surgery. The second thing that can develop in patients with diabetes is glaucoma. So glaucoma is a disease where the pressure is too high in the eye. And if left untreated, over time, it affects the optic nerve. So typically patients in advanced stages of glaucoma have loss of their side vision. But the big one that we treat as retina specialists is diabetic retinopathy. And this is where there's growth of abnormal blood vessels in the back of the eye. It can can lead to one of two things. Swelling in the macula, which is the center portion of the retina, the part that you use for reading and driving. And the second thing it can lead to is bleeding inside of the eye. So these are conditions which, if left untreated, can lead to blindness. And diabetic retinopathy, again, is the leading cause of blindness in patients under the age of 65. Now let's talk about these one at a time. You mentioned cataracts occur at a younger age. So the average age for most people, if they're going to get cataracts, is about their 70s or so nationwide. So if you have diabetes, you said it's cataracts that often occur in a younger age. I imagine it's related to how long you've had the diabetes. But is that why we see people who need cataract surgery and they're like late 40s, early 50s? Absolutely. If a young patient comes in and they have a visually significant cataract, Without any history of trauma, the most likely cause of this is diabetes. So a lot of times patients will come in with blurred vision, we look in, and they haven't even been diagnosed with diabetes yet. And we'll see that that typical, it's called the posterior subcapsular cataract. And the first thing we ask them is, you know, how are your blood sugars? Have you been checked recently? And in this day and age, most people have had a general checkup, but a lot of people are still walking around undiagnosed with diabetes. 
Yeah, in fact, there's a significant portion of folks, and I think statistics show one in three, one in four don't even know they have diabetes because they just don't get it checked out. So interesting, you can actually diagnose diabetes without ever checking a blood sugar, purely by noticing these particular location of cataracts in the eye. Absolutely. The other thing that high sugars can cause is a transient worsening of vision because as the blood sugar rises, it gets absorbed into the lens. The lens becomes more swollen. So these patients have, you know, a significant worsening of vision. And a lot of times when they come in, they may not even have a cataract, but we know that their blood sugar is elevated. And we tell them, hey, your blood sugar is over 400, get it down, and then their vision actually comes back. Which is interesting because if you have diabetes and you're having troubles with your vision, that's not the time to go get new glasses. That's the time to go get your sugars down, whether it be through diet, exercise, medication, insulin, whatever it might be. So if somebody were newly diagnosed with diabetes and their symptom was blurry vision, should they fix the sugars first before they go address glasses or visual correction? Absolutely. Otherwise, they're just going to waste their money getting a pair of glasses that won't be accurate after blood sugars have normalized. Hopefully, and they, the blood sugars do normalize. That's really the big issue. So cataracts are something that can occur, you mentioned, in that particular location, but then also you can also just see visual changes, blurred vision with the high sugars. Now, we mentioned glaucoma, and that's something that a lot of people feel glaucoma that's just a genetic condition. If you have it, if your parents had it, your grandparents had it, you're going to get it. But if you're diabetic, you're more likely to get glaucoma even if no one in your family had it. Absolutely. So there definitely is a genetic component to glaucoma, as you point out. There's also a racial uh, predilection. So it occurs more commonly in African-Americans. But there's something about diabetes, and they haven't really been able to tease it out. They don't know if it's simply diabetic patients are more likely to be referred to see an ophthalmologist, so they're more likely to get diagnosed with glaucoma, or whether something structurally happens to increase the risk of them having damage to the optic nerve. And the symptom would be a loss of that peripheral vision. Right. So typically in end-stage glaucoma, um, people lose their side vision. So they end up with what we call tunnel vision, where they have good central preserved vision, but their side vision, they're bumping into things, they're having difficulty driving at nighttime. And that really is a sign of concern. I mean, clearly, don't get behind the wheel if you're bumping into things during the day or nighttime. Right. Um, but the way to treat glaucoma is treatable? Once the vision has been affected, whatever loss has occurred, you can't get back. So it's all preventative. So if you have early stages of glaucoma, a lot of times you're still asymptomatic. But the treatment usually is to start off with eye drops to lower the pressure. If that can't be controlled, they can do laser procedures or surgery to create a better outflow of the fluid to lower the pressure inside of the eye. And that can happen if you're diabetic with glaucoma or if you're not, you can still do something to try and treat the glaucoma and the extra pressure in the eye. Glaucoma usually causes damage over several years. So this is not one of those emergencies where you have to get in right away. The the typical open angle glaucoma, there are other types of glaucomas that require emergent surgery, but for most people, Glaucoma is a chronic, slowly progressive disease. Now, let's talk about the third thing you mentioned, the retinopathy. You said two major things happen. You have swelling around the central part of the eye, and then you also have bleeding. So let's talk about those separately and then what what they do together. How would you know visually if you had some of that centralized swelling from diabetes, the diabetic retinopathy? How would you know if you have swelling? 
So there are different stages to diabetic retinopathy, but in the earlier stages, most patients are asymptomatic. They don't even know. they, They may not even have blurred vision. So that's the tricky thing in terms of trying to convince patients to get good eye screenings because a lot of times they may feel as though, well, I have diabetes, I'm still seeing 2020, I don't have diabetic retinopathy, but that's actually not the case. Where we want to catch the patients is when they're still having 2020 vision because by the time that they have blurred vision, metamorphopsia, that's where straight lines start appearing wavy, um, they most likely have advanced macular edema, which is, again, swelling in the center portion of the eye. And if they have a lot of bleeding, a lot of times they'll start developing a lot of floaters. And in the end stages, if you don't catch it at that early stage, they end up with a lot of scar tissue, and that's when they lose a lot of vision. And that's really what we're trying to prevent, figuring it out early, doing something about it. If you have, you know, I always wonder, if you already have bad vision, let's say that you have you know, you're nearsighted or farsighted or something along those lines. How do you know when you're having visual problems? I mean, like for the diabetic retinopathy, you mentioned wavy lines. So you're looking at a straight line, but what you actually see is wavy. And so you're assuming that, you know, okay, I'm seeing this line. It it really isn't curved like that. Therefore, there's a problem. But when we mentioned some of the things about blurred vision, how do you know if it's not just your eyes and getting older? You don't know. So you got to get it checked that, out. That's, that's the tricky thing to convince patients to come in and get checked because most likely if you have diabetes, there could be some underlying diabetic retinopathy. I mean, the studies have shown that basically the current screening recommendations are if you get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, insulin-dependent diabetes, you need to get your eyes checked within five years. If you get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or the non-insulin-dependent diabetes, you need to have screening immediately. The reason for that is you may have been walking around for two to three years not knowing that you had type 2 diabetes, and by the time that you get diagnosed, there may be already some diabetic retinopathy. When they go back and look at patients who've had type 1 diabetes for over 20 years, 99% of the patients have diabetic retinopathy. When people have had type 2 diabetes for 20 years, over 60% have diabetic retinopathy. So When I tell patients, oh, you recently got diagnosed with diabetes, it's wonderful that your internist sent you over for for a baseline screening because that allows us to establish what level of diabetic retinopathy you're at and how closely we need to follow you from this point on. Well, and when we talk about getting screened, you know, you should get screened, and you mentioned type 2 diabetics, get screened immediately. Should it be, at a minimum, a yearly evaluation? Absolutely. So, There are four stages to diabetic retinopathy, one through four, and typically once you get to stage four, the clinical studies have shown that's the stage where you want to initiate treatment. If if you're approaching stage four, we're going to be following you more closely. I have some patients that come back and see me every three months, every six months. We look at the overall picture, how well their blood sugar is controlled. If your hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of a three-month average of your blood sugars, They set the target right now at 6.5 or below, but I have some patients that are sitting at a 10 or a 12. Those patients are the ones that we're going to be watching much more closely, depending on not only their blood sugar, but also their level. So we may bring them back every three months. A patient who has excellent blood sugar control with stage one diabetic retinopathy, we may see once a year, but you're right. The minimum screening should be done at least once a year. Now, if you're one of those folks who has 
maybe moderate, let's say you're stage two or three diabetic retinopathy, and your sugars, you mentioned A1Cs of 10 or 12, you know, shockingly, I just saw someone with 17.9. I had never seen an A1C that high. In fact, I called our endocrinologist and said, have you ever seen this? And he said, highest I've seen is 20. So I felt a little (laughs) better, but that was still kind of scary. So when you have that, if you improve your sugars, are you going to be able to improve your retinopathy? Yes. I had this, so I guess we'll talk about treatments later, but um, I had one patient whose diabetic retinopathy was progressing uh, rapidly, and we were trying to treat it with injections and lasers, and he was coming back and seeing us every three months. And finally, he said, I'm tired of getting all these treatments. I'm going to change my lifestyle. I'm going to change my diet. And he dropped his hemoglobin A1C to under 6. And he did that by basically becoming vegetarian or, or vegan. He said it wasn't very funny. He was on a rabbit diet, but his diabetic retinopathy just stopped in its track, and we were able to stop treatments. What I tell patients, though, is once you get to a certain level and the damage has been done, you can't reverse that, but you can actually halt further progression of the disease. And that's a really important point because some folks feel sort of frustrated. Listen, my A1C is high. I can't change my diet or I don't want to or I'm not motivated enough. I'm getting older. or What's the difference? And what you're saying is, hey, there's a huge difference. If you can just work on not just checking in and making sure you see your eye doctor, but bringing your sugars down, there's a definite beneficial impact on the eyes in addition to every other area of the body. They've done clinical studies where they've shown it's not only the blood sugar, but you really have to look at the overall health of the patient. So high blood pressure, high cholesterol, smoking, your kidney function, all these things tie in together. So if one thing is totally out of balance, you could still have relatively good control of your blood sugars, but there's still going to be progression of your diabetic retinopathy. So that's why it's so important. We try to coordinate our care with the uh, PCP, as well as the endocrinologist in, in a lot of these patients. Well, because like you said, it's it's one thing affects the other. It's really all an interconnected system. You can't really just fix your sugars but blow your cholesterol and your blood pressure because you're still going to have other effects if you do that, whether it be kidneys or eyes or somewhere else in your body. So it really sounds like a comprehensive effort in the success story that you shared of someone who brought their A1C down, halted their retinopathy. That's kind of what people need to know is that it can happen. It does happen, and it could happen for you if if you work on it. And that's you'll never know to work on it unless you actually get your eyes checked out. Now, let's talk a little bit about treatment. What are some of the treatments that we do for diabetic retinopathy? So the treatments have really advanced over the last 10 years. <clears throat> Originally, the only treatment that was available was to do laser And this is different from the type of laser that people hear about for LASIK surgery and that sort of stuff. But the principle behind the laser was you have leaky blood vessels in the back of the eyes. We're going to go ahead and basically cauterize the leaky blood vessels and cause the the leakage to slow down and hopefully help the swelling in the back of the eyes. And we still do that, but now we've kind of entered the era of pharmacotherapy. So we are injecting a lot of medicines directly into the eyeball. And some of these medicines are the same ones that we use for the treatment of macular degeneration. So the gold standard right now is to inject something called an anti-VEGF compound. So VEGF stands for vascular endothelial growth factor. And this is a compound that's secreted inside of the eye that causes the blood vessels to become leaky and to grow abnormally. 
So by injecting these compounds that soak up all the VEGF, it's like a sponge you inject, and it soaks up all the excess VEGF, you can really halt uh, the progression of diabetic retinopathy. And so with the use of this medicine, the reason you inject it right into the eye is because you couldn't, I mean, the eye is a closed system. You couldn't really take a pill to do this. You couldn't really put on a drop to do this. The advantage of injecting it into the eye is you deliver a very high concentration to the area of need, and you minimize the systemic side effects. So the eye is a perfect uh, model for us to inject these medicines. It's still an injection in the eye. I think psychologically, when I tell patients that you're going to get an injection in the eye, most of them freak out, and that's why we try to do the injection on the same day, because if they go home... And they think about it too long. They're going to get totally worked up, but... I can reassure the patients that, you know, for the most part, we do an excellent job of numbing up the eye. And I always ask the patients afterwards, well, how was it? And most of them say, I'm surprised. That was it. Yeah, you're right. That whole idea. It's like going to the dentist and being told, come back and we'll fill your cavity. And you just think about it every single day. And so that psychological aspect of you have this, let's do it right now. Here we go. Get it done. It really helps to take the fear element of that away. So in the injection of the medication is one way that we can help to reduce the proliferation of these blood vessels and the bleeding and the leaking and the effect on the eye. Are there any other treatments? You mentioned laser can be done. Anything else out there? Or right now we have injections and laser. Um, If the diabetic retinopathy progresses to the stage where there's just massive bleeding, uh, scar tissue formation in the back of the eyes, we can also do an operation called a vitrectomy. And the technology here is absolutely amazing now. So we basically will go inside of the eye and suck out all the blood that's there and carefully peel off all the scar tissue off of the retinal surface. And so we are able to restore uh, pretty good vision. I had a patient come over from Y&I, and unfortunately for him, he hadn't been screened for diabetic retinopathy, and he came in with bilateral vitreous hemorrhage, meaning the eye had basically filled up with blood, he came in hand motions, meaning he was basically bumping into the wall as, as he was coming into my exam room. Um, we were able to take him to the operating room. And these operations can take anywhere from half an hour up to two, three hours, depending on the amount of scar tissue in the back of the eyes. But for him, we were able to restore his vision back to about twenty thirty, And now he's back. He's living an active lifestyle. And, you know, you look at patients, the options that were available for patients with vitreous hemorrhage, 30 years ago, I mean, it basically was the end of the eye. I still recall going to the doctors with my grandfather who had diabetic retinopathy, and there weren't these options available back then. But in this day and age, if we can get the patients into the clinic early enough, we could definitely have a very positive outcome. Now, this is true microsurgery. You actually have to peel off layers of scar tissue, and then you get back to the eye itself, which you can help to function better. It's uh, it's probably one of the most enjoyable parts of uh, my day, you know, being in the operating room because I think the surgery is is kind of fun. Uh, the instruments that we use these days, the diameter of the cutter and the forceps and the lasers is uh, a 25-gauge needle. So that's about half a millimeter. So basically, the patient is lying in the operating room. The eye's numbed up, so they don't feel a thing at all. We're looking into the eye using a microscope, and we uh, insert 
trocars or little cannulas into the eye that allow us to slip the instruments into the eye. So it's kind of like laparoscopic surgery, but for, for the, the eye. eye. Miniaturized, like significantly. Right. And then so the incisions are so small that when we take out these cannulas at the end of the case, we don't have to put any sutures in. And so 15 years ago, the instruments were much larger, much bulkier. The recovery time was much longer. And so now the surgery time has been cut probably in half. The recovery time is much faster. A lot of times the patients will come in the next day and you can barely tell that they've had surgery. I mean, they can tell because their vision has improved from they hand They can see everything. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. But nobody else visually could say that. Wow, wow. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. James Lai from Retina Consultants of Hawaii. We're talking about diabetic retinopathy and what are some of the new techniques and treatments that we have for that. Now, remember, it is a recorded show, so we won't be taking callers, but there's a lot of great information that we have and we want to share for with you and help, really, yourself, your family, your loved ones, anybody out there who is suffering from this eye condition. Now, Dr. Lai, for a sec, I want to I wanna play devil's advocate. So you said, okay, if you don't screen and you have this bleeding in your eye, then you can potentially, in your particular situation with the, with the gentleman that came in, you could actually do this surgery and restore his vision back to 2030. So what would be the incentive to not just kind of let it go and then go have your corrective surgery? I mean, why would somebody, knowing that in the end they could be fixed, hopefully, with this with this condition. Why, why would they go to all the trouble of checking it out every year? If you could avoid surgery, it's still going to be better for you um, because the treatments at the earlier stages of diabetic retinopathy are simply done in the office with an injection, and you don't have to have a recovery time where you're going to be out of work for a while, that sort of stuff. So I still say, even though I'm a surgeon, I enjoy operating, if you can avoid an operation on the eye, long-term, you're still going to be better off. Well, and that's important to hear, like you said, from a surgeon. Hey, listen, this is something you do because you have such a great interest in it, and you're really good at it, but you don't want to have to do surgery on everybody. If there's a way to prevent it and to improve eye function, you want people to do it. Now, when we talk about diabetic retinopathy in the various stages, you said really it's not until stage four that we really start talking about treatments. So what should people do between stages one to three? The most important thing, the top three things are sugar, sugar, and sugar. Oh, really? Is it sugar? Okay. <laughs> Number four, sugar, right? So it's it's amazing um, the profound effect that a patient can have on the outcome by getting better control of their blood sugars. And conversely, if they don't have good control, I mean, no matter what we do, that diabetic retinopathy is still going to progress. Um, so in the earlier stages, what I tell patients, we're going to form a team. It's important that you come back when we tell you to. Even if your vision is doing well, there could be advancement of your diabetic retinopathy. And then maybe you need an injection once every three months or once every six months to keep things in check. The analogy that I often use with the patients is this is a chronic disease that you're going to have for the eye. So akin to a, a patient who gets their blood sugars under control with an insulin shot, it doesn't mean that they're going to stop the insulin shots after things are under control. It's the same thing with diabetic retin retinopathy. Until they actually cure the diabetes, once you have diabetic retinopathy, you have it for the rest of your life. But you can have an excellent outcome as long as you stay ahead of the curve. Now, one of the curious things and, and a couple of things that you just mentioned really 
really touched on it. You know, it's a team approach, work on your sugars. But you also mentioned that once the damage is done, it's done. You can halt whatever stage you're in, but you can't really reverse the damage per se. So when we talk about folks improving their A1C, the purpose in doing so is to prevent the progression. But even if they got their A1Cs down to perfect, no longer diabetic, we hear about that in certain populations, those who, for some reason, you know, if they've had obesity and have have bariatric surgery, then they can actually, quote, reverse diabetes. It's the only situation in medicine where we've really seen it almost completely go away. But if they had that damage to their eyes, it's not going to go away even if they, quote, cure the diabetes, although I say cure in, in quotations because it's not necessarily a true cure, but it's you're still going to have it. That's an excellent point because I think one of the most frustrating things for patients is after we get them on board with the program, they get excellent control of their blood sugars. A lot of times they're still requiring injections into the eye. And so they come back and tell me, well, I did everything you told me to do. My A1C is 6.3 now. Why Which am I still great, getting injections? Yeah. What I try to explain to them is that it's excellent that you got good control of your blood sugars because it's going to minimize the number of injections that you're going to need moving forward. But unfortunately, we can't undo the damage. And I tell them, listen, it's it's kind of like a smoker who smoked for 20 years and he stopped smoking. It doesn't necessarily mean that he should have felt bad about stopping the smoking. I mean, moving forward, it's, it's excellent that he's going to have all these benefits. But there's a certain amount of damage that occurred that unfortunately is going to catch up with you. Yeah, you can't unsmoke a cigarette. Right. You can try and improve in the future. You can't really change exactly what's happened prior to that. So, But there's no reason not to try to focus looking forward and say, hey, I've got to work on this. So when you see people who are referred to you, how often are they already in the stages of diabetic retinopathy when they know they have diabetes? I mean, do you do you see most of the folks that are like stage zero, they don't have it, everything's okay? Or are most of the people that you see in those advanced groups? I think we're seeing a skewed population because as a retina specialist, we're not on the, necessarily on the front line doing the screenings. So there are a lot of excellent eye doctors out there who are working with the internist screening for the diabetic retinopathy. And if they're you know, at stage zero, stage one, a lot of times they may not get get in to see us. So typically by the time the patients are seeing a retina specialist, that means something bad has happened and they're they're coming in for treatment. So you'll see more of the more advanced cases in your practice because people are referred to you. Absolutely. And out of those that you see in the advanced cases, do a lot of them require the injections or surgery, or are the majority of them still in the, we're going to watch, we're going to wait, maybe we'll do therapy with medicine? Where where do those people fall into that spectrum? I'd say about 50% of the patients that get referred in to see us are between the stage two and three. And so at those stages, they don't require any treatment. And so that's when we're telling them, okay, you know, a red flag has been raised now. We're going to move from this point on trying to get control of your blood sugars. About 40% of the patients come in require either an injection or laser. And then 10% of the patients are have gone beyond stage 4. So they're at the point in stage 5 or 6 where they have the scar tissue or they have the bleeding. And that's the point where you need to have surgery relatively soon. Otherwise, the end stage is blindness. And does the surgery ever not work? I mean, I'm sure there's a certain percentage that are not completely successful. It's it's frustrating because in this day and age, I, I think here in Hawaii, 
um, there's a, a large population of diabetic patients, but I think the word has gotten out that patients need to be screened. But there's still some patients that fall through the cracks for whatever reason. And unfortunately, those are the patients that by the time they come to see us, if there are just so much scar tissue in the back of the eyes, we can still go in, go in and try to remove it, but their vision may not get back to 2030 as like that patient from Y9. So not everybody's going to see great vision at the end. Don't wait thinking, oh, I can just wait and then do my miracle cure surgery because it may not work. In terms of the, the retina, we tell patients, think of it like a, a wet tissue paper. That's basically how delicate the, the retina is. And all of a sudden you throw in all this scar tissue that's kind of like cellophane wrap that wraps right on top of the tissue paper. And the challenge for us is to carefully peel off that cellophane wrap without ripping the retina. And so the more scar tissue there is, the longer it's been there, the poorer the, the outcome. The harder it is. Do you think we'll ever get to the point like we do with cataract surgery where you can have a lens implant? Will we ever get to the point where there is a retina implant? That's the uh, holy grail. They're talking about looking at stem cells as a way to regenerate the, the damaged retina. But the limiting factor right now is the retina is a nerve. And so you can implant retinal cells, but how do you get it to connect with the brain once it, once it gets into the eye? So they haven't been able to figure that out yet. So they do, we get asked all the time, well, can I get an eye transplant? The answer is no. We can do corneal transplants. That's the, the front of the eye because that's not a nerve tissue. But it's a lot trickier to get the retinal cells to grow in the right pathway. So chances are we won't see eye transplants happening anytime too soon. No, but I mean, there is a recent uh, development that is very exciting in retina, and it's called the Argus, Argus 2. And this is not for diabetic uh, retinopathy patients, but it's for patients with uh, retinitis pigmentosa, which is an inherited retinal degeneration. And uh, over the last year or so, there's been a lot of press about, basically, it's a retinal chip that's implanted underneath the retina, and then you have a camera attached on the outside of a pair of glasses, which will transmit the images to the retinal chip and give patients vision. Now, it's at the very earliest stage. It recently got approved for the treatment of uh, retinitis pigmentosa, but basically it's for people who are completely blind, and it gives them the ability to maybe see shadows. So I think the technology, as it gets better, we may be able to help patients regain more functional vision, but at least we're starting. And that particular ability is because the retinal camera, it's still attached to this retina nerve that brings the images to the brain. So there is still that functional nerve. It's just that the retina portion is not necessarily, the front portion doesn't work, but the back portion, the connection of the brain still works. Yes. Yep. So if you lose that portion, uh, not going to work. Yeah. I mean, for the Star Trek fans out there, I mean, it really is, I think it was in the Star Trek Next Generation front when Jordy had those kind of glasses. Yeah, I kind of remember those. That now looks like that Google thing, Google us, the people were, right? They sort right. of had that, yeah. Yeah, so I think the future uh, is bright for that. Well, and hopefully it's bright enough that we can see and, and enjoy <laughs> the vision as well. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. I have Dr. James Lai in the studio from Retina Consultants of Hawaii. We're talking about macular effects of diabetes and, and changes of diabetic retinopathy and why you want to keep your sugars nice and low and, and where are we headed with the treatment of this particular condition because, you know, how, how can you diagnose diabetes without ever checking a sugar? Well, apparently you can look into the eye. And so, you know, I wanted to mention there's a, quite a few things you can diagnose 
without ever checking anything. Blood pressure you can see in the eye, sugar you can see in the eye. What else can you see in the eye that it would, we wouldn't necessarily assume you could as far as diagnosing things? I'm curious. So one of the things you brought up was high blood pressure. We see that all the time. So um, the, the beauty of retina is you can actually look in and see the blood vessels, whereas you can't see the blood vessels in any other part of the body. So patients with high blood pressure a lot of times will have narrowing of the uh, blood vessels. Uh, you can actually see atherosclerosis. I just diagnosed the patient the other day. He came in with kind of blurring of vision. We looked in and we small we saw small little plaques in his blood vessels. And these plaques are called Hollenhorst plaques. And basically it's a little clot that is broken off and traveled up into your retinal blood vessel. And that's a huge red flag saying, okay, well, they just had a little mini stroke to the eye and that's why they were symptomatic. But we sent the patient to go see their internist to look specifically at the carotids. Those are the blood vessels in your neck to check out the heart. And it turned out that he had a major obstruction in his carotid, previously undiagnosed. And they were able to go ahead and operate and, I think, save him from a major stroke. Wow. So you saw that in the eye. And you diagnosed it with the plaques in the eye thus leading to him to do other treatments. They always say, what, the eyes are the window to the soul? The eyes are the window to the body. Lots of different things in the body, particularly, you mentioned, blood vessels. There is nowhere else where you can actually physically look and see arteries pulsating, literally, right there. So when you take a look at someone's eyes, is there a difference in the eye exam for a diabetic than in someone who just goes to have an eye exam check done? If they never tell their doctor, I have diabetes and I have this sugar problem, would you know it? I think when you go for an eye examination, one of the key components is to get your eyes dilated. And that allows the doctors to look into the back of the eyes. It's kind of like if you go see a cardiologist, he basically would never think about just listening to your heartbeat through five layers of clothing. And the same thing, you need to get the eyes dilated so you can get a good view back there. And once, if there's any suspicion that something is going on, there are a whole bunch of tests that can be done for the back of the eyes. One of the tests is called a fluorescein angiogram. This is where we inject the dye into the arms. It travels up into the eyes, and we take uh, special pictures of the back of the eye, and that really allows us to assess the health and circulation of the back of the eye. We have all these fancy toys that we like to play with in retina. One of the other ones is called uh, optical uh, coherence tomography. It uses light waves to do a cross-sectional scan of the back of the eyes. So we can actually see the separate individual layers to the retina. And there are 10 different layers to the retina. We can pick out each different layer. And there are different diseases that affect different layers. So it's uh, it's amazing the imaging modalities that are available in retina. So if you're going to see your eye doctor and you happen to have a history of diabetes, you need to tell them because presumably you're going for a general eye exam, but they may want to specifically focus on certain things if they know about certain medical conditions. Because unless their sugar is super high, you might not know that they actually are coming. Hopefully you would know if they're coming for a diabetes-related eye exam, but would there, there's actual physically a difference in what you would do for a general eye exam versus an eye exam specific for diabetes. I, I think if you're going in simply to get checked for glasses, a lot of times they may not dilate your eyes. But, you know, after the age of 40, you really should get your eyes dilated at least once a year just to see what's going on. Because as we've talked about, you may not have diabetes, but you may have some other systemic illness that can be picked up by looking into the back of the eyes. 
Well, and then there's other eye things to check, too. I know that every time I see the ophthalmologist, he says, okay, we're going to check for glaucoma. Make sure you don't have that. And I go, well, we did that last year. And he's like, nope, nope, we're going to check these things. We screen all the time. And so it's become part of a normal protocol to look for systemic illnesses, but also to look for eye problems as well. Now, when you look in the eye, does having a history of something like previous LASIK surgery or some other type of corrective vision surgery affect what you might be able to identify for someone who has diabetic retinopathy or other eye diseases? Well, that's a good question. So more and more patients now are are getting refractive surgery. So the LASIK surgery is basically where they uh, reshape the front of the eye, the cornea, to get rid of glasses. So that really does not affect what we see in the back of the eyes. Um, A lot of times, though, as the cataract progresses, it can be harder and harder to get a view into the back of the eyes, just like the patients are having a tough time seeing out and um, having a tough time seeing into the eyes. So at that point, it may be useful to have cataract surgery to not only improve their vision, but also to allow us to see better into the eyes to follow any retinal condition. So you could actually have both simultaneously, and it would be difficult for you to diagnose anything in the retina if you can't get past that cataract. It's like trying to drive with a dirty windshield. You just need to have it either cleaned or replaced so you can see what's going on. Yeah, I'm trying to think of that, and that that wouldn't be easy to try and duck around, get around it. So diabetic retinopathy is a serious condition that it sounds to me like we don't fully appreciate. And what I mean by that in we is that physicians and patients, it may not be the big emphasis. A lot of times on the care of diabetes, we focus so much on A1C, which does affect eyes and helps eyes. But making sure that people get their yearly eye exams is something that I think is essential. It's on the list of things that we should do, and hopefully now it'll be done even more efficiently because there's resources out there. You mentioned that there's ophthalmologists in the general community that can do this and screen for people, send you the people who need particular retinal diagnostic testing and treatment, but really there's no excuse. You know, there are some sobering statistics that are out there from the uh, Foundation to Fight Blindness. They did a survey, and they found that 50% of patients with diabetes do not get their eyes checked regularly. One in two. One in two. Hmm. And so, again, this is one of those diseases where if you catch it early enough, you're going to have an excellent outcome. Um, And the other statistic is the rate of diabetic retinopathy. So as the population ages, more and more people are going to develop diabetes but the rate of diabetic retinopathy is expected to triple by 2050. So you can imagine so many people, so many more people are going to have diabetic retinopathy, but so many people are still going to go unscreened. So I think the internists here in Hawaii are doing an excellent job. I mean, the word is getting out that in addition to checking your A1C, you, you need to go see an eye doctor. And get it done once a year at a minimum. Yes. That's your minimum, but could be more often than that and maybe should be, depending on the situation. The other group of patients that need to be screened are um, pregnant women with a history of diabetes because something about pregnancy really accelerates diabetic retinopathy. So um, if you are pregnant and you have diabetes, you need to get a baseline examination at the beginning of your pregnancy, and we're going to be following you very closely during the next nine months. Does it reverse after the pregnancy, after you give birth? Uh, that's the one case where it can reverse. And I wonder if we could ever figure out a way to find out how it reverses and use that as a model for everybody, you know, regardless of pregnancy status. Is there something that you would be able to do if you detected 
diabetic retinopathy in a woman who's pregnant in her first or second or third trimester, is there a way that you could intervene? Would you still consider doing the injections or doing laser? or Would that even be an issue? We are very conservative in terms of treating uh, the pregnant women because a lot of those injections, even though they're injected into the eye, they still are absorbed systemically. So the concern is always any effect that it may have on the fetus. So we do our best to avoid any of those any of those treatments uh, because we can ride out that storm during the nine months. But having said that, push comes to the shove. Sometimes we'll have to do laser, but fortunately with the laser, there are no systemic side effects. So you might still need to do a treatment. Absolutely. And we generally don't like to experiment and say, we don't know what this would do if this gets into your system. And so the injections might not be something that would be looked at as as the first alternative, really. Something like you mentioned, lasers would probably be a better treatment in that situation. What can we do to decrease that tripling by 2050 of the cases of diabetic retinopathy? I think reducing the number of patients diagnosed with diabetes is, is sort of obvious. Okay, we have to work on that. But what else can we do? One in two people don't realize that they have diabetic retinopathy or they don't do diabetes eye screening. So it sounds like we've, although we do a good job of getting the word out, it's not enough. Uh, it's through programs like this where it's just it really helps us by getting the word out. I think um, once the internists are aware that yes, you know they they should get screened every year, that helps. I think uh, just having an overall kind of team approach. So if a patient gets diagnosed with diabetes, you not only want to have their eyes checked but their kidneys. You may want to hook them up with an endocrinologist, a nephrologist, all that stuff. So it has to be uh, a team approach when it comes to the treatment of diabetes. Well, and nationwide, they're looking at a lot of these issues and trying to determine, particularly diabetes in particular, what, what, do you, what do you need to do? And so anybody who has diabetes, there's a set list of monitoring yearly eye exams, having a foot exam, either by a podiatrist or by their internist, having their cholesterol checked at least once a year, having their blood pressure checked, checking their urine for protein loss in the kidney. There's a whole lot of systems that are in place to try and help to accomplish these goals. But a lot of it also requires a patient participation. They need to want to do it and want to be able to be part of that team approach. And I think knowing some of the consequences of not doing so is often what we need to focus on so that people realize that really it is a goal. We want to keep you healthy. We don't want you to have to have surgery. I think a lot of times uh, the hardest patients to treat are often the younger patients because at that point, we all remember feeling indestructible when you're 20 or 25. Oh, those good old days, <laughs> 20 and 25. And so it, it'll never happen to me. But a lot of times what I find is that if they have a family member who's had diabetic retinopathy and they've seen what has happened if left untreated, those patients are scared and they're going to be a lot more compliant. That may be a way to get them in the door, get them screened and hopefully monitored and treated. Now, are there any other conditions that diabetes can cause in the eye? We talked about cataracts. We talked about glaucoma. We've talk, been talking quite a bit about retinopathy. Anything else that diabetes can do to the eye that people need to know about? So there are, in the end-stage cases of diabetic retinopathy, you can develop um, what, what, what we call neovascular glaucoma. So these are more emergent types of conditions where as the bad blood vessels grow, they not only bleed and leak in the back of the eyes, but they begin to proliferate into the front of the eyes. And the problem that causes is it causes the pressure to suddenly shoot up in the eye. 
So these patients often will present with a red, painful eye. And these are cases where you have to do something immediately, otherwise you could potentially lose the eye. Other end-stage uh, cases of diabetic retinopathy are where they end up with a retinal detachment, where the retina is being pulled off the back of the eye. If left untreated, again, the end stage is, uh, end result is complete blindness. You mentioned those two words that I remember learning in medical school years ago. Painful red eye, which is don't mess with it if you're an internist. Make sure they get in to see an eye doctor. If it's just red and it looks like it's pink eye, okay. If it's red and it looks like it's a little subconjunctival hemorrhage in someone who rubbed their eye, okay. That's when the white part of the eye gets very red. But if it's super red and painful, don't mess with it. That's one of those conditions you're talking about. Pain is no good. Pain in the eye, no good. Okay. <laughs> and then you mentioned retinal detachment, and we hear that a lot. Diabetes could be a, a cause of that. What else can cause a retinal detachment? So there are two main types of retinal detachments. The types that we most commonly see are called regmentogenous retinal detachments, and those are where a tear or a hole develops in the retina. So again, the retina is like the, the lining of the back of the eye, like the wallpaper. That's that wet tissue paper you yes. talked about. Okay. So it normally should lie completely flat against the back of the eye, but if you somehow develop a hole in the retina, it allows fluid to start tracking beneath it, and the retina can bubble off the back of the eye rather quickly. So the typical symptoms are a patient will have a lot of floaters, flashing lights when there's a tear, and all of a sudden they start experiencing a curtain or a black shadow that comes across their vision, and that's a, a retinal detachment. So when they come in, that is something that typically requires surgery in the operating room immediately to get the retina to settle back down. So that's the one type of retinal detachment that you see, which is developed maybe because of a hole or because of some buildup of fluid. So, so those retinal detachments usually occur, occur as a result of trauma in patients who are very myopic. So when you're nearsighted, your eyeball itself is longer than the average person. So you can imagine you take that tissue and you stretch it, it's going to be a lot thinner than the average retina, retinal thickness. So that predisposes you for developing a retinal hole. So these types of detachments can or cannot occur in diabetic patients. Diabetes does not increase the risk of a regmatogenous retinal detachment. The type a of retinal... Regmatogenous retinal detachment. Regma from... Uh, Rent, I guess that's the Latin. okay. <laughs> All right, so that particular type, trauma-related or eyeball-related, depending on your vision, what type of retinal detachment do diabetics get? So they end up with something called a tractional retinal detachment. That's where there's just that proliferation of scar tissue that just grows onto the surface of the, of the retina. And a lot of times, the scar tissue is thicker than the retina itself. So you can imagine as it proliferates, it begins to tug, tug, and it just pulls the retina, just lifts the retina off the back of the eye. And if that happens, I presume that's pretty serious, emergency surgery? Yep. So that's where you have to have surgery to peel and, you know, remove all that scar tissue. And then we tack the retina back down using a laser, we essentially solder it down. And we usually, um, sometimes we'll have to put something into the eye to push the retina back into position as well. Is it fairly successful? Depends on how you define success, but anatomically, we uh, have very good chance of getting the retina back into position, but the vision often is limited by how much damage had already occurred to the retina. So one of the things that occurs in, in diabetic retinopathy is the tissue becomes ischemic, meaning it's not getting the blood supply and all the nutrients that it needs, and because the retina is a nerve tissue, once that tissue dies off, it doesn't come back. So you can get the retina to physically settle down but the function may not return. 
So the sooner you intervene, the more likely you are to have a better outcome. Because if if you don't intervene, then essentially the end result would be you can't see. That's correct. So in order to avoid blindness, if you have a retinal detachment, get it taken care of ASAP. Retinal detachments typically are the ones where we're taking the patient to the operating room, you know, that day or within a couple of days. Because you could wait a couple of days in that scenario? It really depends on if it's a, what type of detachment it is, but a diabetic retinal detachment, you can typically wait for a couple of days, sometimes a couple of weeks. So a lot of times the patients come in and they're sick. And so before we take them to the operating room, we want to make sure that everything else checks out and that they're stable enough to undergo an operation. The more stable they are, the better the outcome of the surgery, I would imagine. Yes. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. James Lai. He is from Retina Consultants of Hawaii, and we're talking about what happens in the eye. What are some of these terms that you might have heard? Diabetic retinopathy, and we've also talked about retinal detachments, cataracts and glaucoma, really reasons that people need to be concerned about the eye and really not wait until they lose vision. Now, there's a normal age-related process that occurs with vision. And that's also that same age group, you know, as you get into your 40s and 50s and beyond, that's also the people that we see who tend to be developing the type 2 diabetes, and it's related either to lifestyle or to stress or to weight gain or any one of those various issues, genetics included. So how are they to know if their visual changes are, hey, I'm just getting a little older versus, hey, I've got some trouble with my sugars? That's a good question. I mean, I'm at the age now where I'm beginning to experience some of those changes myself. (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, so am I, and I'm not in the 2025 invincible stage. (laughs) When I started looking at things and putting them a little further away to see them, I went, oh, no, there, it's happening. At a certain point, your arm is no longer long long enough. enough, Oh, no. Okay. I think we have some friends out there who agree with what we're talking about. All right. So, but I I think, you know, beginning at probably at the age of 40 or so, it's a good idea to establish a relationship with a internist so you start getting checked out making sure you don't have diabetes high blood pressure cholesterol all that good stuff but yeah a lot of times you don't know is it simply an aging process presbyopia setting in or is it because you have some underlying systemic illness so really it never hurts to get it checked out so we could actually put eye doctor on our list of yearly doctors to check in with you know internist yes dentist maybe once or twice a year I think they say twice. I'm a big fan of that because you know what happens if you don't see them often enough. Uh, and so we'll add eye doctor onto that list, really, because you should. Even if you have healthy eyes, no other medical conditions, and you feel like your vision is good, you should probably still get your eyes checked out. True? Yes. Uh, you know, because there are so many things, that, as we talked about, that you can diagnose by looking into the back of the eyes. I had a, a patient that recently came to see me because basically he was having fever after fever after fever, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And they thought, well, maybe he had some weird infection. He, he had been treated with three courses of antibiotics. Then they thought maybe he had cancer, you know, this fever of unknown origin. And we looked in, and there were telltale signs of inflammation in the, in the blood vessels. And the first thing we saw, thought was, well, maybe this is a vasculitis, which is an inflammation that can affect all parts of your body. And so as a result of that, they're able to go down the right track and make the right diagnosis. So, of course, I'm biased as a retina specialist, but I think we can establish or at least help make the diagnosis for a lot of different diseases that may 
go undetected initially. Now, what does a retina specialist do differently than a general ophthalmologist? So as a retina specialist, um, we also did, we went to medical school, we did a residency in, in ophthalmology, and then we decided to subspecialize in the retina. So that's usually a two-year fellowship afterwards where we deal simply with the retina. So we deal with medical issues. We, we learn how to do the lasers, repair um, various conditions with the, with the lasers in the back of the eye, and we also do retinal surgery. So some of the things that we do as retina specialists are ma- uh, we treat macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy. If there are cataract complications, when they do cataract surgery, sometimes a piece of the cataract can fall into the back of the eye. At that point, we will get involved. We have the special instrumentation to be able to go into the back of the eye to fish it out. If patients come in with intraocular foreign bodies, I just took care of a Marine the other day who got a piece of metal shot into his eye. So at that point, if anything is inside of the eye, you know, there are special techniques for us to get into the back of the eye to, to remove it. So it's a pretty exciting field. It certainly sounds it. I mean, all the good that you can do by really just looking into the eyes. But in addition, if somebody says, okay, I'm going to go get my eyes checked out yearly, do they need to go see a retina specialist? Is a general ophthalmologist with a dilated eye exam a good place to start? Who needs you versus who needs a standard ophthalmologist who may not be retina retina specialty? I think the joke is most people do not know what a retina specialist is until they, they until need they one. have to. Okay. So I think in general, seeing your general ophthalmologist or optometrist, where they're, they're going to check you for glasses, as long as they feel comfortable dilating your eyes and looking in the back. I mean, there are a lot of excellent eye doctors here in Hawaii, but if there's a problem, that's when they're going to get sent to see us. So if they never have to meet a retina specialist, that's probably a good. That's thing. not a bad thing. <laughs> Don't be disappointed. Okay. And so when you go in for your yearly exam, if you have the dilated exam, they should be able to identify some of the main things that you're talking about, seeing the differences in the blood vessels, seeing if there's any of that narrowing related to blood pressure, seeing if there is any of the basics, cataracts, glaucoma, even the beginning of the diabetic retinopathy, and then refer you to someone like yourself who is a retina specialist. We're still happy to see all patients. I mean, sometimes patients will get referred by their family member, or, and so, you know, we're still, but if it's, if we don't see any retinal issue, then we're going to send them back to, because we don't do glasses and that kind of stuff, so. And that's kind of interesting. Some people don't realize that there is a bit of a difference, that when you go to get your glasses, you're checking to see the front of the eye and how you can visualize and see things. But when you look in the back of the eye, that's a slightly different story. And now we're kind of taking a look a little deeper into the eye for other eye diseases. And there's a difference in training, too. I mean, optometrists and ophthalmologists and retina specialists have different areas where they all work together as a team to try and make sure that people's eyes are healthy. We share patients with uh, the optometrists and ophthalmologists. And, you know, as I said, there are a lot of good eye doctors here in Hawaii, so we're fortunate. Now, your particular group, the Retina Consultants of Hawaii, you don't just have offices right here on Oahu. You also have areas on some of the neighbor islands. Yep. So we uh, go out to Kauai and Maui to see the patients, and it's actually a, a very enjoyable part of our practice because a lot of those patients, as we talked about in our last segment, for whatever reason, they cannot get out here to Oahu. And so we will bring the medicines out to the outer uh, neighboring islands and treat these patients, and they're very nice, very appreciative. But if they end up needing surgery, at least for now, the neighboring islands don't have the surgical equipment, so they'll still fly out here to Oahu. 
But the nice thing is that you actually have a presence on Maui and on Kauai so that if people there have serious retina problems, they can get them checked out. And it's nice. You come to them, which is great. Now, you also have offices here on Oahu. Where are the offices here on this island? So we have an office at Kuwakini, at Queens, and at Polymomi. And uh, we operate at Queens, Polymomi, and at a surgical center right by the Dole Cannery. And so if somebody wanted to schedule an appointment they and they wanted to call, how do they know where to call? Is there a general number that they can just give a holler to to find out? Sure. Our main office number is 808-487-8928, and that will patch, you us, uh, patch them to uh, the receptionist, and they can just tell us which office to come and see us at. And do they need to be referred by their general ophthalmologist? Or if they say, yeah, I was told I had that diabetic retinopathy. I know I've got that condition. Is that enough for them to come in and see you? Yeah, we're, we're happy to see them. And, you know, if they have it, then we'll go ahead and, and treat them. If they don't have it, we'll make sure to hook them up with uh, an eye doctor in the community. Somebody who can really help them, particularly, you know, neighbor islands. If you have an eye emergency and it's not the time that you're there, you want to have someone locally to be able to kind of take a look at that. Absolutely. Future plans for the Retina Consultants of Hawaii. Expansion to our friends over there on the Big Island. Do you have uh, plans to expand even here on Oahu? Is there a need for more of your specialty services? Yep. So we've been approached by um, many of the eye doctors on the Big Island uh, to maybe go out there. I think there's a big need, so we're looking into that. Um, We're doing a lot lot of exciting things with our practice. We're um, doing a lot of clinical trials looking at newer treatments for diabetic retinopathy and macular degeneration. Um, there was a recent medicine that just got approved. It's called Ozerdex, the, and we were involved in the national clinical trial for this. But basically, it's a new way of treating diabetic retinopathy, where, whereas before these injections needed to be performed maybe every four weeks, now we have this medicine that comes in a pellet that's basically an extended-release pellet. So... Remember those little things that we used to, the blue things that we used to drop in the toilet bowl that would dissolve over time? Yeah, that that was always supposed to clean it out. Never did so good. Well, it's kind of a similar principle where they have this medicine now where this medicine is released over a period of four to six months. Patients love it. You know, now they have to get an injection instead of once every four weeks, maybe once every six months. Well, and I know you said the injections aren't that bad, but I have to say, I'd I'd go along with that. Well, we've learned a lot today, particularly about the eye and how to take good care of the eye. Thanks again for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. Thanks. It's been fun. All right. The Retina Consultants of Hawaii can be reached again at 808-487-8928. They're available on Oahu, Maui, and Kauai. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. Our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here Monday at 5 on The Body Show. We'll hear from you then.